Hi, this is Wilson, lead pastor of Renew Church OC. Thanks for listening to our podcast. Our sermon series, Psalms, the Internal Life of David, pairs narratives from David's life with Psalms that help us pull back the curtain to understand what he's feeling, how he's praying, and the way he's relating to God. LA is all about how you look and the two-second impression you give to other people. But God doesn't look at the appearance. He looks at the heart. I hope this series helps us to take our eyes off of the external and focuses our attention on developing our internal life with Jesus. All right, Renew Church, if we can finish and if we can look up here, that'd be great. I'm sure you have a lot more. This was a heavy, heavy question, and I'm sure there's a lot that you could uh, share and I uh, don't want to take away that thunder, of course. Uh, so you could talk about it afterwards. But if we could, let's go ahead, turn, turn, uh, turn forward, and uh, maybe look at me. Thank you. Thank you so much. If you have your Bibles, you can turn to 1 Samuel chapter 18. We're going to be looking at chapters 18 through chapter 21. So as you've guessed, uh, we won't be doing an expositional study on this. I'm actually going to be cherry-picking parts of it and kind of picking my spots. But uh, in 1 Samuel chapter 18 uh, through 21, we're going to be looking at that. And then we're also going to be looking at Psalm 59. You're thinking, how are you going to cover all that? I'll show you in a minute, okay, how we're going to do this. But the title of my message is Worshiping in Trials. Worshiping in Trials. You know, there's a pattern of thought that has permeated our Christianity today, and it says that if you find yourself unsuccessful at your job, if your business is failing and and you're going bankrupt, if you're having financial trouble, then receive Jesus as your personal savior, and your career problems will magically disappear. Become a Christian, and God will miraculously save you from bankruptcy. Maybe your physical health is failing. Maybe your emotional life is unsatisfied. Then trust in Jesus for your salvation, and he'll turn everything around, where you'll find yourself super healthy and supremely happy. If you find yourself in desperate need and in poverty, then just respond to Jesus, call upon the name of the Lord, and he will give you everything that you've ever dreamed of by way of riches and material success. We call this a health and wealth theology. And Christianity has bought into this materialistic philosophy that teaches that if we just become Christians, then all of our problems should disappear. Everything in the Christian life should be met with success. Success in our relationships, our riches, our rights, success in our health, our healing, our happiness. But does a person come to Jesus for wealth? Should it be because of material success that we receive Jesus to be our Lord and Savior? When you think about it, this idea is not Christian at all. It's rather pagan. The reason pagans worshiped their gods was to receive things from them, whether it be blessings or fame or riches or power. The purpose was to appease the God's favor. The goal was to manipulate the gods to grant their desires. But when we treat salvation as a divine quid pro quo, 
we fall into that same pagan understanding of God. And here salvation is not about material success, transforming our situation to meet our desires. Salvation is rather about securing a relationship with Jesus the Messiah, whereby he transforms our very existence to his divine will. But what has happened is because we have this wrong idea, when trials or hardships arise, we can't move forward by faith confidently believing despite trials because we have trusted in a pseudo-Christian notion that once I'm saved, I shouldn't encounter trials. Because I'm born again and I know Jesus as my Lord, everything in life should be smooth sailing and everything should go my way. And you know what we don't know how to do? We don't know how to worship the Lord through the trials of life. You know, Christian maturity means that as we grow in Christ, we learn that trials are just a part of the program. God pushes us into the refiner's fire. Jesus sends us into the storms. The Holy Spirit leads us into the desert. Our Lord ordains our valleys. And we have to learn how to worship him in the trials of life. Can I get an amen? In our study of David this morning, we're going to realize this truth. That a man who is after God's own heart, that one who is truly beloved of the Lord, that a person who has been anointed king can and will encounter suffering. That a regenerate child of God can find himself or herself in a valley. And we're going to learn or we're going to look at David in the valley this morning. Now, very quickly, if you can put that slide up, what is a valley? Well, Webster's Dictionary defines a valley as a, as a stretch of low a land between mountains, an elongated depression between mountains. All of us know that ge uh, geographically. But did you know valleys emotionally are those same things? It's low land. It's any place or period or situation that is filled with fear, anxiety, or despair. It's those feelings that we have between the mountaintops of success in our lives where we are on an emotional depression, an emotional uh, decline. And you know, a valley physically is when we've expended all of our energies. We're fatigued. We're worn out. We're vulnerable. We feel insecure and inadequate in our lives. So what is a valley? Well, very simply, it's the lowest point. Geographically, it's the lowest point. Emotionally, it's the lowest point. Physically, it's the lowest point. And theologically, it's the lowest point. We see in the life of David a low point, a valley. One that has been sovereignly ordained by God. An opportunity for the Lord to prove who he is at a time when David is at his most vulnerable, his lowest point. In 1 Samuel chapter 18 through 21, we want to look at truths concerning valleys. And I only have two for you this morning. Number one, if you're taking notes, write this down. The number one truth, if we can put it up here, it is in the valleys that the fighting is the fiercest. Isn't that true? It's in the valleys that the fighting is the fiercest. Do you know historically, many of the most well-known battles were waged in the valleys? Military experts, when they talk about ancient warfare, will tell you that a valley is the perfect place for a battle. 
And I want you to see this metaphorically in the life of David. Let's look in verse 6. It says this, when the men were returning home after David had killed the Philistine, we all know the Philistine as Goliath. The women came out of all the towns of Israel to meet King Saul with singing and dancing, with joyful songs and timbrels and lyres. Verse 7, and as they danced, they sang, Saul has slain his thousands and David his tens of thousands. So I want you to picture this. Saul and David are returning from the battle. David has just pulled off the miraculous. He has killed the champion of Gath, the giant Goliath. And here the Israel, Israelite forces have routed and defeated the Philistine enemy. And so Saul and all the Israelites rejoice at this amazing victory that they've experienced. Their spirits could not have been higher than right now. And when the news reaches the Israelite towns, everyone comes out to rejoice. And the Bible says that the women came out of the towns singing and dancing. And you know what they sang? They sang, Saul is slain his thousands, but David his tens of thousands. Now, was this true? No, not at all. David was a 17-year-old boy. This is the first Philistine he has killed. Granted, it was a great achievement, but he's only killed one Philistine. Saul is a seasoned warrior. Everyone knows that Saul is the commander. He's the greatest warrior. So everyone knows that in their head, but they're sharing this as a jubilant song to commemorate this day, to honor this little boy, 17-year-old teenager David. And they're all just really excited. So it's an innocent song. It's a beautiful song. But now all of a sudden, this innocent song hits Saul wrong. This song is taken the wrong way by the king. And in verse 8, let's look at it. It says, Saul was very angry. The term in Hebrew is picturesque. It means to slowly burn from within. So Saul stewed in his anger. And in verse 8, it continues, and it says, this refrain displeased him. It's the idea of turning in his stomach. So very picturesque. All the fear and worry and insecurity that lay deeply dormant in Saul began to awaken. And Saul began to stew and churn and turn inside, simmering in suspicion. And here's what he says in verse 8. They have credited David with tens of thousands. He thought, but with me only thousands. What more can he get but the kingdom? And you see this paranoia awaken. Verse 9. And from that time on, Saul kept a close eye on David. You see, this innocent song stirs up Saul's insecurity, where he says, this hero could usurp me as king. This giant killer could become a king killer. And in verse 10, the next day, an evil spirit from God came forcefully on Saul. He was prophesying in his house while David was playing his lyre, and as he usually did, Saul had a spear in his hand, and he hurled it, saying to himself, I'll pin David to the wall. But David eluded him twice. So here's the question. How long does it take for Saul to go from, number one, loving and celebrating David, to number two, being jealous and envious and suspicious of David, to number three, trying to kill David? How long does it take for a person to be loved and celebrated and the next instance, have a spear thrown at him. The answer is 24 hours. Look at verse 10. It says, the next day. And this illustrates the ferocity of a valley. 
The ferocity of a valley is that it can come suddenly, unexpectedly, and without warning. And isn't that true in our own lives as well? Suddenly, unexpectedly, without warning, we can find ourselves in trials. We can feel perfectly healthy one day, and then the next day discover that we have stage four cancer. We can be moving forward, happy and satisfied in our job, working hard, and then all of a sudden, we can be fired by our boss who had been planning and plotting to, to, to get rid of us without us being aware of it at all. We can be in a relationship with someone and think all is going well, and then all of a sudden, that person betrays us and slanders us and talks ill of us and creates a false narrative about us all in an instant. You see, I'm sure David thought his toughest battles would be against the Philistines. I'm sure he never imagined that his fiercest enemy would be his own king. And here David had to deal with a political war where he couldn't even trust the person that he was fighting for. Let me ask you, beloved, why does God place us in these valleys? Well, it's in the valleys that we find out what we're really made of. Valleys are crucibles. It's where our true colors show. You can see my true character by how I respond to the unexpected, unscheduled valleys in my life. And it's a chance for God to transform us, amen? How does David respond to this valley? Look in chapter 19 and verse eight. I have it up here. It says, once more war broke out and David went out and fought the Philistines and he struck them with such force that they fled before him. Even in light of Saul trying to kill David and betray him, David shows faithfulness. He's loyal to the king and to Israel. He shows leadership ability, continues to command victory. King Saul has no servant as dedicated and as trustworthy as David. What does Saul do with that? Let's look in verse 9. But an evil spirit from the Lord came on Saul as he was sitting in his house with a spear in his hand. And while David was playing his lyre, verse 10, Saul tried to pin him to the wall again with his spear. But David eluded him. I want you to see two things about this. And it's two things that we need to understand about valleys. Number one, I want you to see the free will of human beings. Saul, by his own sinful will, is trying to kill David. He is guilty. He is at fault with creating this trial. He is definitely responsible for this sin. Saul is threatened by David's success. Saul's sin issue actually goes way back even before David, if you understand or you've read uh, this story before, and he has not repented of his hubris and his rebellion and disobedience, and he's not gotten right with God, and this unrepentant heart now is festering and is uh, maliciously creating something that distorts his thinking and his actions. You know, let me share this with you. When we go through trials, many times we encounter sins and failings of other people who by their own free will bring about pain in your life. That's true. But never forget number two. Not only the free will of human beings, but number two, the sovereignty of God. Why does Saul try to kill David? Verse 9, let's look at it again. But an evil spirit from the Lord came on Saul as he was sitting in his house with his spear in his hand while David was playing the lyre. And Saul tried to kill David. Here we see that this was from the Lord. Now we know that God is not the author of evil 
And I don't have time to theologically parse that truth, you know, because that would take a whole nother sermon. But just know this, that just because God is not the author of evil doesn't mean that he doesn't allow evil in your life. Saul, by his own free will, attempts to murder David, his sinful demons, his perverse heart. Saul's own will, through that spirit, to destroy David. But God sovereignly allows David's suffering in his life. God superintends the valley that he's in. And by the way, David from that point spends 13 years running from King Saul. Can you imagine that? From his late teens throughout his 20s, Saul is seeking to destroy him. And he's living as a fugitive. He's dwelling in caves. He goes to foreign countries. He, he's living out as an as a, uh, outlaw. David doesn't end the valley until he's 30 years old. God sovereignly places him in a valley for 13 years. Now, why do we go through valleys? Because God is not just the God of the mountaintops. He's also a God of valleys. Amen? It's hard to say that. Here we see David, the anointed, the beloved, the child of God, going through a valley of suffering for a purpose. And Christian, it's the same with us as well. God sovereignly allows valleys in our lives for a purpose. And it's so encouraging to my heart when I know that. That we can go through suffering knowing that God is in control of that suffering in our lives. That God orchestrates this for a reason. What is the reason for our valley? And this brings us to the second truth. Can we put it up? It is in the valleys where we always look up. Isn't that true? Stop and think about that. Isn't, isn't it how it is? If a valley is the lowest point, then there's nowhere else to look but up. Why do I have valleys in my life? So I will look to the Lord Jesus. Psalm 121 and verse 1 says, I lift my eyes up to the mountains. Where does my help come from? My help comes from the Lord. You see, valleys make us predisposed to look up. Why does God place me in a valley? Because when you are on the mountaintops of success, you don't naturally look up, do you? I don't. You look all around you at others, at your career, at your wealth, at your friends. You even look at yourself. And you say, oh, how, how happy am I? How great am I? Right? But when we're in a valley, our natural inclination is to look up because there's nowhere else to look but up. Let's look in verse 10. Saul tried to pin him to the wall with his spear, but David eluded him as Saul drove the spear into the wall, and that night David made good his escape. Verse 11, Saul sent men to David's house to watch it and kill him in the morning. Imagine, David must have been so confused. He must have felt so discouraged. He must have been so disillusioned. What have I done to deserve this? Why? I've always been good to the king. I've always been loyal and trustworthy. I've always served him faithfully. Why am I getting spears thrown at me? And it's at this point in the story that David pens this beautiful worship song. This song of worship, Psalm chapter 59. If we could put it up, please. Psalm chapter 59, and I'm going to read it in verse 1. It says, deliver me from my enemies, O God. Be my, and then look at this word. I want you to focus on this word. Be my fortress against those who are attacking me. Deliver me from evildoers and save me from those who are after my blood. 
See how they lie in wait for me. Fierce men conspire against me for no offense or sin of mine. I have done no wrong, yet they are ready to attack me. Arise to help me. And then look in verse 9. It says, you are my strength. I watch for you. You, O oh God, are my, and here's the word again, fortress in times of trouble. In verse 16, you are my strength. I sing praise to you. You, O oh God, are my fortress, my God on whom I can rely. You see, David learns the number one reason for valleys. They have reminders that we need the Lord. We look up. We look to Jesus, and we worship him as our divine fortress. Amen? What is a fortress? What is it? It's that thing in our lives which we find refuge in. We trust and we rely and we're encouraged by that fortress. We lean on it as our security. We find strength from that fortress. And there's nothing wrong with fortresses in and of themselves, but it can become the substitutes for the Lord. But it's in the valleys that God proves himself to be our only fortress that we can truly find our refuge in. And I want you to notice that here we see in the story and also in the psalm that God takes every one of David's fortresses away. Number one, he takes away his companion. Can we put up the slide? Mahal, his wife. A companion is who you desire with all your heart. Is another thing up? I'm sorry. I don't know if it's up in the wrong way, okay? Companion, okay? Verse 19, 11 and 12 says, but Mahal, David's wife, warned him, if you don't run for your life tonight, tomorrow you will be killed. So Mahal let David down through a window and he fled and he escaped. From here, I want you to notice this, David doesn't see his wife for 13 years, all because he's running from Saul. Saul, David lost the security of his companion. Number two, I want you to see this. Counselor. A counselor is our fortress. And that is Samuel. To David, Samuel was his counselor. It was, he was the one who anointed him to be king. A counselor is who you listen to with all your mind. In chapter 19 and verse 18, it says, When David had fled and made his escape, he went to Samuel at Ramah and told him all that Saul had done to him. And then he and Samuel went to Naoth and stayed there. And so David finds his counselor, the man who knows his destiny, the man who knows that he is to be king one day. This is his mentor where he goes and gets counsel. It's the person that he listens to with all of his mind. But from here, listen to me, David never sees his beloved mentor Samuel again. Because Samuel dies, and he loses the security of his counselor. The third fortress is his confidant. His confidant, Jonathan. That's his best friend. A confidant is who you trust in with all of your soul. In chapter 20 and verse 1, it says, Then David fled from Naoth at Ramah, because Saul was coming to Ramah. And he went uh, to Jonathan, and he asked, What have I done? What is my crime? How have I wronged your father that he's trying to kill me? And then later, in verse 41, it says, David got up from the south side of the stone and bowed down before Jonathan three times with his face to the ground. Then he, they kissed each other, and David wept, and they wept together. But David wept the most. You know why he was weeping? 
because he was saying goodbye to his confidant. And after this, David is never reunited with Jonathan again. Jonathan dies in battle. He loses the security of his closest friend. Now imagine how painful the experience was to lose all of this. When you find your fortresses in people, your focus is not up, it's side to side, it's horizontal. You look for your counselor, you look for your confidant, you look for your companion. And there's no, nothing wrong with it, like I'm saying, we have uh, those things for a reason, we have a community for a reason. But let me share it this way. When we look at our earthly securities as our ultimate fulfillment, our companion, our counselor, our confidant, God places us in valleys that are too deep, too dark, and too difficult for them to help us. Amen? God will place us in things that the only thing we can do is to look up. And I want you to notice, lastly, the career. David's career was taken away from him. A career is what you work on with all of your strength. And in, verse, in uh, chapter 21 and verse 1, it says, David went to Nob <clears throat> at, to Ahimelech the priest. And Ahimelech trembled when he met him and asked, Why are you here alone? Why is no one with you? And David answered, Ahimelech the priest, The king sent me on a mission and said to me, No one is to know anything about this mission that I'm sending you on. As for my men, I told them to meet me at a certain place. David is lying about his career. Because now he is indeed a fugitive. He's an enemy of the state. And it's clear that he has nothing now. David was once a successful officer with the brightest future. And all of a sudden now, he has lost his earthly identity. Why does God do this? Why does he separate us from fortresses? If we can put the next picture up. I don't know if this is the picture you were laughing at. Okay, I hope not. But anyway... This is a picture of Michelangelo's famous sculpture, David, right? All of us know this sculptor, right? Uh, and all of us know this artist, Michelangelo's David. You know, the sculptor artist starts with a block of marble. And in Michael, Michelangelo's perspective, his job as an artist is to free the masterpiece from that prison of marble. It's a prison, it's a block of marble and now Michelangelo needs to create his masterpiece. So you know what he does? He takes hammer and chisel and he separates the model from the marble. He takes that chisel and he cuts off pieces that instruct the masterpiece from coming out. He cuts out the big pieces and the small pieces. And he chisels exactly what he wants on his creation. And so the artist must now separate things in his model before he finally displays his masterpiece for all to see. My friend, that's exactly what God does with us. The valleys are his separation process to make us into his masterpiece. See, God desires to create, design, develop a person who will be used here for, on earth to bring him glory, his masterpiece. And so he takes his tools. He takes the hammer and chisel of difficulties and hardships of trials and suffering to develop us, to make us into that masterpiece. And there are times when the artist needs to chisel out those perceived supports that we have. There is nothing wrong with these supports. There's nothing wrong with a career or a companion or a counselor or a community. 
These are all God-given supports. But the temptation is that they can become our absolute fortresses. The career can be what we desire with all of our strength. The companion can be what we work, or excuse me, what we desire with all of our heart. The counselor can be what we depend on with all of our mind. The confidant can be what we trust in with all of our soul. And these are places where we try to find ultimate security. And we're tempted to substitute these for the Lord Jesus. And that's why God places us in valleys. Mark 12, verse 30, Jesus commands this. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. What is he saying? Make him your divine fortress. And this is worship, isn't it? Where do I learn that? How do I learn that? Well, I learn it in the valleys. Because the purpose of being placed in a valley is so that you will look up and you will live out Mark chapter 12, verses 30. That we would learn how to live with God alone as our absolute fortress. You know, um, I don't think I've ever, I've shared this story once, and I only share it once because uh, it's so embarrassing and it makes me look crazy, but uh, I think it'll be a great help to you. And so let me share this. Um, you know, uh, there's a time in li my life where I was at the lowest point. Uh, I remember I was going through uh, a church split, and uh, there was so many political things that were happening. And uh, so I was ousted, and uh, I was betrayed, and uh, I was slandered. It was all for political reasons in a church. And I remember as a young, you know, 20-plus-year-old, um, I fell into a depression. And I remember, um, you know, I was living, um, you know, in a, in a one-bedroom, uh, and uh, I would sleep all day, and uh, because I slept all day, I'd be wide awake at night, and I would be like a ghost through the, the one-bedroom. I'd just wander here and there, and uh, I was just depressed. And I remember uh, 2 a.m., I remember just being up. I couldn't pray. You know, I love talking to the Lord, but I, couldn't, I just couldn't. I couldn't read my Bible. I love reading my Bible, but it just sickened me to read scripture uh, at that time. I love to sing, all right? Uh, I usually sing by myself so no one can hear me, you know? And uh, I would sing in the shower. I would sing, you know, and, and I just have a habit. That's my worship to the Lord. I would sing to the Lord. I couldn't sing. I felt so dry and depressed. I remember thinking to myself, what am I going to do, you know? I just feel all these feelings, and in my pain, at 2 a.m., I remember hearing a meow, meow, outside the door. My wife was sleeping, you know, and I was wandering around. And I heard this meow, right? And it was annoying. It, was, it really was annoying. And so I look out. Is that picture up there, by the way? It's, it's up there. Okay, okay. So I look out, and it's this black kitten. It's this really cute kitten, and it kept meow going like that. And it, not, it annoyed me, but it also made me feel, you know, I had a nurturing instinct, right? And so I got a bowl, and I put some milk in it, and I put it out, and the, the, the uh, kitten started drinking it, and uh, then it kind of went away, right? And you know, the very next day, it did the same thing, you know, around one or two in the morning, meow, meow, you know? So I came out, I did that, and I did it for about three days. And I remember as I was doing this, that third day, I remember the Lord really speaking to my heart. And I remember him saying, if you can't pray, and you can't sing, and you can't read your Bible, 
then just meow to me. Just sit on your couch and meow. And th that's, I look crazy. That's why I don't share this story a lot. I started doing that. Meow. Meow. You know, imagine. I, I, I look crazy. Yeah. But I remember just doing that. And you know, I remember just the Lord being my fortress. Just being able to run and hide when I couldn't do anything else. I, I couldn't even exercise, you know, uh, my spiritual disciplines. Because I, I just, I couldn't do spiritual disciplines at the time. But I remember the Lord being my fortress. And I'll never forget that God was trying to remind me that he is the only fortress that I could ever rely on. He desires to have a relationship with us where he is proving who he is to us. A redeemer, a protector, a counselor, a shepherd, a sculptor, a fortress. Whether we call trials valleys or storms or floods or fires or deserts or battles, it's all the same thing. It's all the trials that the Lord puts us in and he sovereignly puts us in. So I'm asking this morning, can you worship the Lord through these trials? You know, I'm going to ask the praise team to come up and if I can ask our worship team to come up, I want us actually uh, to sing the desert song together. It's one of my favorite songs. It's from Hillsong. I sing in the shower all the time, okay? Uh, and it, it says this, and I want you to, as they're coming up, they're preparing, we're going to sing that. And instead of me just praying us out, I want you to sing this as an affirmation to the Lord that he is our one and only divine fortress. But the desert song says this, this is my prayer in the desert when all that is within me feels dry. This is my prayer in my hunger and need. My God is the God who provides. And this is my prayer in the fire, in weakness or trial or pain. I have a faith proved of more worth than gold, so refine me, Lord, through the flame. And this is my prayer in the battle. When triumph is still on its way, I am a conqueror and co-heir with Christ, so firm on his promise I'll stand. I will bring praise. I will bring praise. No weapon formed against me shall remain. I will rejoice. I will declare that God is my victory and he is here. All of my life in every season, you are still God and I have a reason to worship. Amen? Let's go ahead. Let's sing this to the Lord as we conclude our message today. Hi, this is Pastor Wilson again. Thank you for listening to our podcast. If our sermons have been a blessing to you, I'd love for you to consider supporting our church and ministry. As we approach the end of the year, we're asking our church family to consider investing into a special fund that support our interns and seminarians. Renew has a vision of investing in pastors for the next generation through our internship program. And your financial partnership can help set up a young pastor or missionary to faithfully serve the Lord for the next 30 to 40 years. I often dream about what Erwin or Kevin will do for the kingdom of God through their 30s, 40s, and 60s. Our goal is to raise $50,000 over the season. Would you consider joining us? You can give through PayPal or Venmo or by sending a check. All the information is on the description section of the podcast. Or you can visit our website. And your investment is tax deductible. Thank you so much for being a part of our church family. 
If you're ever in the Fullerton, California area, please drop by into our Sunday service. I'd love to meet you. God bless.